Hi everyone, it's Jeannie. Just a heads up here. This episode of Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is kind of different. It's about how one event, a sexual assault, played out over 15 years of one woman's career. We'll let you know when the description of the assault is about to start if you want to skip over that part. Would you tell me your name and your title? Or at least, you know, how you would like to be identified. Okay. Um, I was like, I don't have a title right now. Um, <laughs> this is Sarah Schott. I'm an open government and civic tech consultant that works with governments local to international. Yeah. That works. Okay. Sarah's built a career looking at big, complicated processes, like how governments work and communicate with the public. She sees where things aren't working, and she figures out how to fix them. If you live in the Seattle area, you know Sarah's work. She's the reason there are easy-to-read food safety ratings in every restaurant in King County. Smiley faces that tell you at a glance whether the food safety in the restaurant is excellent or whether it needs to improve. Sarah fought for that after getting E. coli from food at Seattle restaurants. Twice. After the second illness, she realized King County had a problem, and she came up with a solution. If restaurants had to publicly post their food inspection scores, it would help customers make better decisions, but it would also push restaurants to be more careful about their own food safety. So Sarah started advocating for that, which included telling the story of her own terrible experiences with E. coli from eating at Seattle restaurants. Here she is back in 2014 talking about her second bout of E. coli. I was in and out of the ER and um, had internal bleeding. It was pretty severe and I still suffer some health effects from it. I am on a very specialty diet right now. Um, <laughs> I can't eat carbohydrates um, and I've had actually a lot of joint pain and a lot of stomach issues. Telling that story worked because it helped people see the problem she was trying to solve and how high the stakes were. Today, less than five years later, Sarah once again finds herself in a similar situation, talking publicly about a difficult personal experience to try and highlight a much bigger problem and the high stakes involved so she can help solve it. Except this time, it's a problem that's shadowed her for nearly her entire career, and it's a problem that nobody in any workplace has figured out how to solve yet. But Sarah's trying anyway. This is Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. You Liz out this week. I'm Jeannie Yandel. And yes, your workplace is sexist. Even if you work in liberal and progressive politics, and even if you're surrounded by men and women who claim they're the good guys. When Sarah Schott was in her 20s, she had a kind of certainty many of us don't have at that age and that some of us never find. She knew what she wanted to do for a living. She wanted to use technology to make democracy stronger. But this was back in the early 2000s, kind of the Wild West days of the Internet. And there weren't a lot of places doing the kind of cutting edge work Sarah wanted to do. But there was one place. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. 
the Howard Dean presidential campaign. Now, before the scream, the Dean campaign seemed to have some kind of magic power over the Internet and mobile phones to raise money and get out the vote. And besides believing in Howard Dean's platform, a lot of the people who came to the campaign had stuff in common. They were young, they were smart, and they knew how to do innovative things with technology. Sarah Schott was one of those young, smart people. She moved across the country from Seattle to Vermont to take an unpaid job with the Dean campaign headquarters. Everything felt really exciting and full of potential, but also kind of chaotic. Campaigns are crazy. People are willing to put themselves through tons of stuff for a candidate. And so, yeah, uh, that was the context I was in. The campaign had a bunch of group houses for unpaid and paid staffers to crash in. And when Sarah got there, she managed to get into the group house where she'd get an air mattress instead of the floor and where the front door actually locked. Plus, some of the people Sarah respected crashed there, too. But even amidst that kind of chaos, Sarah loved working for the campaign. Everything felt really hopeful and full of promise, like anything was possible. Then, late one night, Sarah saw one of the staffers stumble through the living room where Sarah was trying to sleep. And that's when things changed. And here's that warning. Sarah describes the assault, so if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead about a minute. So I walked over and I was like, are you okay? Kind of holding him up. Uh, And he kissed me and I was surprised. And I was like, uh, and suddenly found myself pinned to to his bed and holding him off of me, telling him no and telling him to stop and don't do this. And I, as a as kind of a sidebar, I had been uh, spending a lot of time in the gym when I wasn't working. And pr- even prior to coming to Dean, I could leg press 280 pounds, 300 pounds. Like, I'm, I'm not sure why people in my fam- family have freakishly strong legs, but um, they served me well in that I physically held him off of me until he passed out drunk. And then when I knew he was asleep, I crawled out of the room and tried to get some sleep and packed up all my stuff as early as I woke up the next morning and checked into a hotel. And I think I stayed at the hotel for a few days. I may have skipped a day or two of work. I I just didn't know what to do. I I at the very least realized that the onus of that was on him. But then it became, well, how do I report this? What do I do about this? As, especially an, an attempted rape where I had been successful in fighting someone off. It, like, it, how do you report that? Sarah told at least one friend on the campaign about what happened, but she also wasn't ready to walk away from the path she'd chosen. So she kept working with the campaign took a paid job in Iowa, and eventually a Dean campaign official, a woman, called Sarah asking if something had happened. Sarah reluctantly told the official about the assault. That official then connected Sarah with an attorney who asked Sarah a bunch of questions that made her uncomfortable. Eventually, the attorney told Sarah that her attacker was given a verbal warning, but that was it. And then the Dean campaign ended, so Sarah moved back to Washington State to finish college and eventually start her career. 
She started a nonprofit called Knowledge is Power. She spent $15,000 of her own money to build an online tool for Washingtonians to track state legislation and talk to their lawmakers. Sarah was doing stuff nobody had ever really done before, and leaders in her field were starting to notice. I was getting invited to speak at events in D.C. and, and elsewhere because we, as this very tiny, scrappy organization, were able to build something that hadn't really been seen outside of people who were scraping Congress. Um, scraping means like, imagine millions of copy pastes mm-hmm. <laughs> from one one website to another. Um, That's the best description of scraping I've ever heard, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Then something even bigger happened. In 2008, Sarah was invited to spend two days at the Sunlight Foundation, a powerful new government transparency organization in D.C., She'd be in a room with maybe 30 of the biggest movers and shakers in her field, and she'd get to tell them in person about her work. This was an open door to some of the most powerful people in the country who worked in Sarah's field. In other words, it was the kind of opportunity that could make Sarah's career. Then she started getting emails and invites to conference calls to start planning this big deal event. And on those emails and invites was a name she recognized, the name of her attacker. Clay Johnson. I was like, that's a really common name. It's probably not him. It's probably fine. It'll be fine. And then got on a conference call. Nope, that's his voice. That's him. And I was thinking, what is this fish doing in my pond? I move ponds. While Sarah came back to school in the Northwest after the Dean campaign, Johnson stayed on the East Coast. He co-founded an online political strategy company that worked with prominent national campaigns, including Barack Obama's 2008 presidential run. Johnson would go on to become a Presidential Innovation Fellow and a Senior Fellow at a liberal D.C. think tank. Earlier this year, HuffPost published a story with allegations of sexual misconduct against Clay Johnson, including other assault allegations. After the story was published, Sarah started to suspect the Dean campaign never took any action after she reported her assault, even though the campaign had an explicit policy against sexual harassment and misconduct. Sarah's been in touch with some of the leaders of the Dean campaign. They said they don't remember hearing anything about her allegations. There are members of, of the Dean campaign, former, former members of the Dean campaign, who are like, this never came to our radar, and we don't know who this lawyer is you talk to. So it could have been. It, the thing is, it's like, it's 15 years later. So I have my memories. Other people have their memories. And what seems kind of evident in putting our our fuzzy puzzle pieces together is that perhaps someone took this out of the official process, thinking they're throwing themselves on a bomb. Someone took this out of the official process, thinking they were throwing themselves on a bomb. In other words, Sarah suspects that call from the Dean campaign official about the assault The conversations that followed with the lawyer might have been a ruse to make Sarah think the campaign was looking into her allegation when, in reality, the official's goal was to sweep it under the rug. The thing is, Sarah can't prove she's right about any of that, though. There's no smoking gun, just suspicions and gut feelings and fuzzy puzzle pieces. That's important to keep in mind as we go back to 2008, to that big deal event at the Sunlight Foundation and Sarah's discovery that Clay Johnson would be there too. I'm going to be trapped in a, a room 
with this guy for two days. I may have to sit next to him. I may have to be in small group discussions. He may try to talk to me. I don't know what the evening events are going to be. I don't I don't want to be talking with him. I don't want to be around him. So Sarah got in touch with a friend who worked at the Sunlight Foundation. She told him she didn't want to make a big deal about anything, but that she'd been assaulted by one of the men attending the two-day event. Then she asked her friend to have her back to make sure that during that two-day event, she was never seated next to her attacker or left alone with him. Then she told her friend her attacker's name was Clay Johnson. And when I said his name, he gasped and said, we just hired him. Sarah's friend said he had to tell the leadership at the Sunlight Foundation about her allegations. So Sarah was on her own. Clay Johnson would be at the event, and now it was possible he knew she told someone else at the Sunlight Foundation about the assault. It was also possible the other movers and shakers at the event would hear about the assault, too. But Sarah decided the event was too important to her career, so she went anyway. And it was really challenging to, like, get through and be a professional who's presenting about her innovations in the field and stuff. But I did it. And after that two-day event, Sarah's career did change, but not in the way she expected. Opportunities and grants just seemed to dry up for her. Leaders who she thought she had a good relationship with seemed to get less interested in working with her. She couldn't get enough funding to keep knowledge as power running, and in 2012, she shut the nonprofit down. It might have been because of the recession, but it might have been something else. Because it turns out, Clay Johnson got a chance to tell his own version of events to the leaders at the Sunlight Foundation event. He already had more power and access than Sarah. And Sarah now knows that for some of those leaders, Johnson had more credibility too. After the HuffPost piece came out, two of those leaders wrote a public statement saying they were, quote, fooled by Johnson's own description of his encounter with Schacht, end quote. But what Sarah doesn't know is whether there's any connection between those leaders believing Clay Johnson and so many doors seeming to shut for her after the Sunlight Foundation event. Once again, all she has is her suspicions and her gut feelings. There's no smoking gun. Man, it's a, it's a galling thing to realize that <laughs> asking for one person to have my back in a room for two days had a decade of consequences. Or could have had a decade of consequences. And I can't, I can't know for sure. So maybe I was not that good or not that smart or not that organized or whatever. It's, it's hard to know how much impact that had. Between 2004 and 2009, there were two key instances where Sarah told colleagues about her assaults and named her attacker. The first time she spoke up at the Dean campaign, there were no real consequences for her attacker. The second time she spoke up, the best case scenario is, once again, there were no consequences. The worst case scenario, the one that Sarah still feels in her gut sometimes, is that she was the one who got penalized. 
But despite all that, Sarah got a lot done in the last 10 years, including civic tech work in Europe and the food safety campaign here in King County. At the same time, since traditional grants and funders didn't seem to want to work with her, she came up with workarounds and found new ways to fund her work. Then, earlier this year, HuffPost reporter Molly Redden approached Sarah, said she was reporting on other allegations against Clay Johnson, and asked if Sarah would do an on-the-record interview. I did not want to talk to her. (laughs) I didn't want to go on the record. But slowly, Sarah's mind started to change. The Me Too movement was well underway at that point, and for the first time, Sarah thought it might be safer to speak up. But she'd already experienced what it was like to tell her story without support, and she wasn't about to do that again. So Sarah got connected to the Time's Up Foundation, and they paired her with a legal team and a PR team. Sarah also worried that talking to the media would open herself and her family up to online and physical threats. So she hired a security advisor with her own money. Then, and only then, she agreed to let Molly Redden interview her. As afraid as I was in going on the record, um, when I was in that decision-making process, I kept having this visual of him again, pinning me on the mattress. And and I thought about how over my career, one person after another in protecting themselves and therefore protecting him piled on. And it was this immense amount of pressure that I had to hold off of me and my career and my life. I was just done withholding that off of me. And I I was just so ready to just push all of that off of me. Um, And I also just felt a responsibility because by this point, I learned over these 15 years that I was not the only one, that other women had alleged rape against him. One on the campaign that actually seemed to make it through the proper channels. Um, And other women had had a a range of other interactions that had been very inappropriate. And so I realized that those women have life circumstances that are not mine. And I now had all of this help and support. And I I could go forward. In May, Molly Rudden's HuffPost story was published. It described Clay Johnson as someone who spent years mistreating his women co-workers and that his behavior was an open secret that never stopped him from rising higher and higher in progressive politics. Johnson responded to Sarah's allegation and the others in the HuffPost piece. We reached out to him for a response, too, but he never got back to us. Sarah's name was in the first sentence of the HuffPost story— She waited a few days before reading it. By then, there were emails waiting for her from a few colleagues. It was like for the first time in my career, people saw me clearly. People saw both what I had built and when I had built it and with the limited resources I had. And and then they saw, like, knowing now a decade on, like, all of those challenges 
And then to have this as a layer on top of it, they were just like, the fact that you accomplished all of these things, damn. <laughs> you know, I, I, what you go through to remain in your field after something like this has happened is you have to be really strong. You have to really stick to it because so many people in the field just go away when something like this happens to them. And even though I had to at times tack left or right or dodge and weave, I tried to stay on course as much as I could. Sarah started reading online forums and social media groups for her field. Lots of people were talking about the article there, and many of them offered loads of solutions. Stuff like, we need more women leaders. Sarah read those solutions, and she thought they were fine ideas, but none of them would work. Because none of those ideas dealt with the much bigger problem in her industry. The problem Sarah had to dodge and weave around her entire career. The culture and leadership and policies and perceptions that allow a monster to flourish. Like, I kept thinking about that image of, like, pitchforks in a black and white, um, you know, old-timey village, and then they're, like, going for, like, Dracula or something. There's too many villages where nobody pick, picks up a pitchfork. Essentially, they're like, you know, Dracula is actually really useful. You know, I think he's kind of a jerk. He's kind of a jerk, but... I've never actually seen him suck the blood out of anyone, so. None of the solutions Sarah saw dealt with the fact that well-meaning people in her industry were still siding with monsters over survivors, in some cases without even realizing it. So Sarah decided she wanted to help solve that problem, which is to say Sarah Schott set out to fix the broken place where abusers get to flourish in their careers at the expense of survivors. The broken place no industry has fixed yet. That's after the break. Within days of the story publishing on HuffPost, Sarah went to D.C., she wanted to tell her open tech and civic government colleagues that the solutions they were discussing online weren't enough. She wanted to start brainstorming solutions to the much bigger problem of abusers thriving in their careers while survivors were left to fend for themselves. Those colleagues had all read the story and they were eager to hear what Sarah had to say. But first, they would kind of we would start talking about potential solutions and they would quickly pull out this Pandora's box as I call it, of things that had happened at their organization or their previous organization or were happening right now. And they were just like, crack it open and let it fly. And one meeting after another after another, sometimes I was having eight meetings a day with different organizations and individuals. And it was interesting. It was tr kind of traumatizing to to to, to hear that full breadth. People felt very comfortable because I had come out with my story talking to me about their story or things that had happened to people close to them in the workplace. After a while, though, Sarah started hearing some patterns. Those patterns included um, mid-level managers who were political and cautious um, and quiet and were opposed to what they saw happening in their workplace but would never stick their neck out, neck out to stop it. Um, charismatic 
leaders who knew that they had a monster in their midst, but it was their monster who had great relationships with funders and and people of influence in media. Those Pandora's box conversations helped Sarah come up with other solutions, ways for nonprofits and funders to uncover the same patterns she was finding. Solutions like use LinkedIn and Google to look at who's left the organization or moved regions and look for trends among those people, like whether most of them are leaving one particular team or region, like whether the folks who are quitting are mostly women or people of color. You know, sometimes in all of this, I wonder, after all of these women have told me that they had to leave, women, uh, people of color, queer folk have told me they had to leave organizations because of bullying, harassment, or sexual assault allegations. You know, they, they had to leave their career. They had to leave literally the region they worked in because of this stuff. And I thought, is part of why we're paid less because we're all in some kind of weird career refugee status, that that process of having to cut ties and move on and try to rebuild somewhere else because of something you didn't do. I, I was just like, what are the economic consequences of that? Not to mention like the, the emotional and um, yeah, just, yeah the emotional consequences. Sarah has spent months thinking about what it means to change a culture where survivors have to become career refugees while abusers get to see their careers thrive, which means she's taken on a new full-time job helping design solutions to create that massive culture change in her field. But Sarah still has loads of clarity about what she wants to do for a living. And it's not this. It's not the work that I want to do for my life. It is not the work that I'm I'm certainly not getting paid to do right now. And it's work that I I kind of question like should this be me intervening in this? And I think it's been a weird thing in the process to realize, you know, people saying you don't have to do this. And I totally understand why other people who have who have similar experiences to me should not feel responsible for for pointing out where the other broken places are or having to be advocates like but I realized both my personality and my how I get work done and how I process things is to be like yeah there's some broken places I should identify them so I'm not Sarah Schott the person who does all the things around preventing uh, sexual harassment and assault and in our in the civic tech and open cub world or campaigns but I'm just trying to be at the table and be a useful voice while my voice is relevant. Sarah worries sometimes about the impact of her voice and the voices of all the other people who have told their stories in the wake of the Me Too movement. And now all the people who have told their stories with the why I didn't report hashtag, which is to say Sarah worries will all continue to consume these first person stories of assault and be just horrified by them. But then we'll move on and never really address what it means that each of us takes part in systems that allow monsters to thrive. But Sarah sees signs of hope, too. She found out the Sunlight Foundation is planning a truth and reconciliation process to make sure they don't make the same mistakes again. Sarah says someone from the Sunlight Foundation got in touch with her recently to talk about the best way to make their findings public 
so other organizations can learn from it and start figuring out how to get on the side of survivors. Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is a production of KUOW in Seattle. This episode was produced by me and edited by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. Our producers are Maya Aina and Kyle Norris. Our series editor is Jim Gates. Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. Special thanks for this episode go to Molly Redden and Sydney Brownstone. This podcast was inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club, written by Jessica Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Kessia Gordon. There's a lot more to Sarah's story. We've got links to the HuffPost story, Sarah's medium piece called Bravery Squad, and a Chronicle of Philanthropy piece, where Sarah lays out more of her solutions in our newsletter. Subscribe at KUOW.org BTSW. I'm Jeannie Yandel. Eula will be back next episode. Until then, keep up the good fight. See you next time.